Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Hey, what's up? This is Nate John, producer for the show. This is our main event from PolitiFest 2022, The Politics of Homelessness. Our homelessness expert, reporter Lisa Halverstadt, was able to get San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and Chair of the Board of Supervisors Nathan Fletcher together for an hour to talk about our region's biggest issue. They got into bathrooms, Bill Walton, the city and county partnership, homelessness prevention, the shortage of service providers, and of course, housing policy. You can see the rest of our live streamed panels at politifest.org. Let's get into it. Thanks, Scott, and I'm pleased to have the mayor and the chair here today to talk about our biggest issue in San Diego. So without further ado, chair of the Board of Supervisors, Nathan Fletcher, and Mayor Todd Gloria. So before we get started in our discussion, it just strikes me every time I'm in this room how beautiful it is. And this problem that we're going to talk about today, it's not pretty. It's tragic. And so we should look at that. So these are some photos um, of what folks in our community are living in and living with right now. Uh, deaths are rising in the homeless community. This is a makeshift um, memorial to someone uh, recently in the River Park area. Um, this is Michael. He's 63, and he lives in Claremont, and he enjoys making jewelry that he still makes on the street. So I want to emphasize that we're talking about people here today. And... Uh, this is Shay and Chino. They're in their 40s. Uh, Chino has stage four cancer, and recently they've been living uh, along the riverbed at times. Um, this is Lucius. Uh, he's 70 years old. He keeps Narcan on him to keep people around him safe. And he wants me to ask the panelists about restrooms. Um, and this is eight-year-old Alo, who until recently was sleeping in a van with his family. Thankfully, he's been housed um, in, in an apartment now. Um, but there's a wide variety of people that are experiencing this crisis. I want to start with something that pretty much everybody in San Diego has been talking a lot about lately, and that is Bill Walton's comments. Um, for those who are not familiar, been living under a rock the past couple of weeks, um, Bill Walton, who is a former NBA star, uh, appeared at a press conference, had a lot of things to say about Mayor Gloria's response to homelessness. Um, he called for the mayor to resign and said that the mayor needs to do more to crack down on homelessness. So just a quick response. Mayor Gloria, what do you make of what Bill Walton recently had to say about your performance? 
you know, Lisa, I actually regret that you're starting there because we've already first commented on it. Um, and we have a lot of work to do on this. This issue, it doesn't benefit from more drama. We need less drama, more solutions. Yeah. And, you know, the next day I got up and did more of what I do, which is to try and find more places that we can establish shelters, uh, to try and pass more pro-housing policies to build more homes that people can live in permanently, and to continue our outreach efforts to actually get people off the streets. Uh, you know, unquestionably, his frustration, your frustration, I doubt there's anyone in here that's happy with the state of affairs. My frustration, we're all frustrated by it. The question is, what do we do with that frustration? I'm not giving up on San Diego, others can do that. I'm gonna continue to do the work I'm doing to try and expand it on a shelter that we have in this community that leads to housing that gets people off the streets for good. So the reason I wanted to start with that question is because I think that there's something playing out that Bill Walton's comments sort of speak to. And that's this frustration about public spaces being taken over by homeless individuals. There are a lot of people that feel that right now um, and feel that their communities are being taken over. But on you know the other side of the coin, I can tell you that homeless people don't feel welcome. And often they're in these very places because they feel pushed to those places, they feel most safe there. So what do you think we should do about that? And I would you know, bring that question to, to both of you. What should we do about that? I mean, it starts with not elevating just the rich and the famous in this conversation. As you said, there's business owners that will give you this story. I get emails every day from people of all walks of life about their frustration about the situation. What we have to do is give them better options than living on the street. And that's not easy to do. Last time we were on a panel together, we were out in the college area trying to increase the number of housing units available to formerly homeless individuals. That was a rough meeting. There, I imagine there's some folks here who are very sympathetic to unsheltered people. There weren't a lot of folks from that point of view in that room. We were. We're unabashedly in favor of creating more of those housing, and we'll continue to do that work because that's what solves the, the issue. But the answer is we have to give people better options than, what, than the sidewalk, and they're undeniably in the country, state, and the city as well. as this one, there has to be. There are. We need to make more. And I think, I mean, a part of this is you've, <clears throat> you've got to recognize, I thought you did a good job at the beginning, pointing out the humanity uh, of individuals who are unsheltered. Every one of them is somebody's child. Uh, every one of them is someone's brother, cousin, uncle, um, and none of them, when they were a kid, said, when I grow up, I'm going to live on the streets and be homeless. And so they've, they've gone through some difficulty or challenge or circumstance, medical, uh, financial, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, undiagnosed and treated mental health or substance abuse. You know, there, there's some reason they're there, but there's still a humanity that you have to acknowledge and recognize. You also have to acknowledge and recognize the legitimate frustration of small businesses. Right, that are, are seeing you know folks disturbed when they're when they're trying to you know patronize their restaurant. The, the real frustration folks in the community feel um, around what happens, and, and both of those points of view are legitimate. And I think that's why we get up every day and tackle what is an incredibly complex, very difficult, challenging situation. And we're doing everything we can to give folks a better option to get off the streets, to be able to get the services, the help, the support they need. Uh, and transition them into permanent housing. Um, and so I think we have to continue to do that work in a humane way for those that are homeless and recognizing the very real frustration folks feel that's out there. Um, and I think the mayor's point is really important. Like you, you, you do the work and you do it daily and it's challenging and it's hard and you just have to keep moving and you have to keep fighting and you have to keep pushing. Um, and so, you know, trying not to get distracted by you know, whatever the, the unique nature of, of the thing is each day, and really continue to not lose focus on what you're trying to do. Recognizing it's hard, and it doesn't go as fast as either of us would like. Uh, and, you know, some of these, you know, what, what's really heartbreaking is you work so hard and you get one person off, and you get them transitional house, you get them a permanent house, and then you see three more people slide into homelessness because the economics are what they are. And so it can be incredibly frustrating, but it's the mayor's point, you can't give up. You just have to get up every day and push for more efforts um, and, uh, and, and try and do better. Well, and I definitely want to talk about newly homeless people in a minute, but um, I will say, you know, Mayor Gloria's policies have been in the news a lot recently as it relates to enforcement affecting unhoused individuals, including in the past week, um, there was a new policy announced where people uh, will need to take their tents down during the day. Um, but kind of thinking back to you know what I was describing, the frustration that some people are having about public spaces, 
I've been thinking a lot about um, you know, what they proposed and successfully uh, passed the city council in LA, um, banning homeless individuals or camps from being within 500 feet of childcare facilities and schools. Um, and I know that um, Senator, State Senator Brian Jones um, plans to introduce new legislation that would ban uh, homeless individuals from setting up camp within a thousand feet of a park, a school, a library, a child care center. What do you make of, of that sort of approach? Is that appropriate? What's the right type of enforcement as it relates to people living on the street? Should there be, you know, I think there are many people in the audience who think there shouldn't be any enforcement. There are others who think a lot more needs to happen. Right, well, I mean, first off, there has to be some enforcement. We have rules, we have laws, and we need to enforce them. To, if we don't like them, we can change them, we can abolish them, uh, but we can't ignore them. And that's been a central challenge in my public service where people you know, have been at various times because they don't like the law that is in play that they want us to simply ignore it. That doesn't work. We have laws that dictate how we can use our public rights in a way, and you know, that's increasingly becoming more important. You know, we have new laws around street vending um, and around uh, micro-mobility devices, right? They're, they're, these are human beings. I want to note that that's very different, but the point is is that we have rules and we expect people to abide by them and we have to do that. At the same time, here's the thing. I think we understand and have compassion for the unsheltered population, but there are people affected when you can't walk down the sidewalk. Uh, if your mobility is limited and you don't have free use of the sidewalk and you have to go out into the street, that's a problem. You talk to some of the schools, particularly the barrio local community, it's tragic what their children have to deal with. And that should be a challenge for us to, again, build more shelter and build more housing. But that takes time, and we can't leave the state of affairs on the street to be what it is. And Lisa, I know you know this because you did aggressive reporting in 2017 when the deteriorating conditions on our sidewalks caused 20 people to die of hepatitis. I haven't forgotten that lesson. I hope people in this room haven't forgotten that lesson. That was a tragedy. And that was because we let the situation continue unabated. We have to clean up and make sure these spaces are safe, both for the unsheltered individuals and for the people in the broader community. And we have to enforce the laws. We can't ignore And I, I would just add to that. I think the, you know, the challenge is you can put in place whatever this many feet from here or there. You still got to have places to take people, right? And if you have places where you can take them, then you can enforce, right? And, and you should, right? I mean, I, you know, I don't think there's this fundamental right to put your tent on the sidewalk. But if there's nowhere else for you to go, that becomes a challenge. And so a lot of these efforts that you discussed are just about pushing people a little further away where a lot of folks will, will have, won't see it as much. But it's not getting to the root of the issue. The root of the issue is you need more permanent supportive housing, you need more affordable housing, and in the interim, you need more shelters, you need more safe parking lots, you need more safe campsites that are service-infused, right? And with caseworkers and social workers that are designed uh, to be able to do that. And we had an uh, encampment in the unincorporated area, Magnolia Avenue. In large part, the city of El Cajon just decided, well, let's just push people across the street, and then we'll say, well, it's someone else's problem. But because we had capacity, because we had places for folks to go, we were able to clear that and convert that into a safe parking lot. But again, if every time you turn around to cycle one of these folks are doing these things, it, you constantly get shut down, it makes it a real challenge. And so it requires everyone to be willing to be a part of the solution uh, and everyone to be, be willing to say, yes, we will take some of this in our neighborhood. We realize that we need these options, we need more of those. And as we build out more of that and we have more success, then it makes the enforcement easier um, and, and, uh, and, and work a little bit better. You want to add something? Well, and, I, and to be clear, I mean, this is, despite comments that were made on the stage recently, there is a lot of work being done in this space. In the less than two years that I've been there, we've increased shelter capacity by 38% in the city of San Diego. We've expanded our safe parking lots, or at least one of them be 24 hours a day. We have another one coming online hopefully soon. We've passed two, one housing action package, we have another one that's currently being uh, worked on. We are advancing solutions which make enforcement, the solutions are good in and of themselves, but it does mean that enforcement becomes more viable because we do have options available. Not as many as we want, we're not mission accomplished, no one's saying that. But to, as some have said, and, and media have repeated, uh, that nothing's happening, that's far from the truth. I mean, we've opened uh, the, a, a third uh, sprung shelter. We've opened the Seahart uh, shelter together. And the kind of collaboration that is going between the city and county right now is something that should be lauded, encouraged, and announced to continue on. 
you think it's bad right now, can you imagine the previous Board of Supervisors? I don't have a behavioral health department. I don't have mental health services, I don't have substance abuse services. I have a police department, a fire department, a sanitation department. I created a homeless services department to try and address this more comprehensively. But we need this partnership and we're doing it and we're putting results that are out there and that helps the people to go there, but it also means that enforcement becomes more important. And I, you know, I think on that point, um, look, the, the board, you know, I've been there three and a half years and it, we, we, we always have to do more. We have to do more, we need to do more, we need to do it faster and get that disclaimer out of the way. But it's unquestioned that the county government is involved in issues of behavioral health, mental health, substance abuse, and homelessness in a way they have never been in the 200-year history of this county. And, and I wish the prior boards had been more involved because the situation wouldn't be as dire as it is right now. And it wouldn't be as bad as it is. But we have a county that wants to be partners. Now, I'm, I'm gonna say this, we have a city who wants to partner, right? We recently put out $10 million in grants. We gave a standard MOU. We said any city, you want to do safe parking, safe camping, safe shelter, we are on the hook right here contractually committing ourselves to provide mental health and drug treatment services. You don't have to negotiate with us, you don't have to haggle with us, you don't, we're going to do it. And then we went and put $10 million out in grants and said, hey, we'll give you some grant funding so you can get these things up and running. And only three of the 18 cities applied. Right? The city of San Diego was one. So. It takes the city and the county working together, but it, it takes all the cities and the county working together. And so we need that regional sense because downtown gets the most attention and the, and the most focus, but this, there's not a neighborhood anywhere in San Diego uh, that's not impacted by this. And when we see efforts move forward and then we encounter things like what we went through with El Cajon, you know, that's where, like, like, no, we need everybody moving forward. So I've got a lot of follow-up questions based on, on what was just said. So I'm going to try to pick one to start. Um, so I think essentially there's something that I think is a misnomer in the community a lot of times, that we have enough services, we have enough beds. And I'm not saying that either of you are arguing that, but I think that's one of the tensions is you all talk about all the things you're adding, and people aren't seeing the results of that. So I'll just throw out a couple numbers um, myself here. So. In the city of San Diego alone, there are about 2,500 people in our latest point in time count that were counted living on the street, probably an undercount. And at the same time, countywide, that's more than 4,000 people, um, including city of San Diego. Um, we have under 2,000 shelter beds to start. And again, that's an undercount. Um, you also have the issue of the fact that there are more people becoming homeless. And there's been more discussion about this recently that you know, homelessness isn't a static thing. It's not a static problem. You might house some people and then other people become homeless. And you have to have the services for those folks. Um, so one thing I definitely wanted to prioritize asking the two of you about today is what we do about trying to stem that tide of people becoming homeless. There have been some county programs and city programs recently announced they're really pilot level prevention. We're talking a few hundred slots, um, and we know that there's so much more need. So what policies are the city and the county looking at to try to prevent this avalanche of homelessness that's really feared right now? Well, I'll jump in with one. I mean, when I first got to the board, uh, the first two years were tough um, in terms of, of getting, trying to change this culture and mindset that the county needs to be in the game. Um, and uh, Tamara will remember we had a flex pool for housing debate that broke the brain of the county board of supervisors. I mean, it was, it was, and it was just making this point that's like if we take funding in a flexible pool for someone that's on the risk, the verge of homelessness, if you're barely, you're paycheck to paycheck and you're barely making it and the engine blows in your car, okay, well, now what's your choice? If you pay to fix your car, then you can't pay your rent. And if you don't pay to fix your car, then you can't go to work, so you're gonna be homeless. So the best investment we could do is give someone money to pay to fix their car. And it just was the hardest thing in the world. And we finally got it up and running, but it was limited in funding. But our flex pool for housing, we launched 440 folks, we've been able to stabilize. Now, though it's not the number that we need, but 440 folks, we've been able to stabilize. And 12 months after they were stabilized, 93% of them are still permanently housed. That works. Now, we just came back two weeks ago, and the same folks that 
way cut down the amount of money that we could invest with the same ones who are like, oh, we need more money, this is a great program. And so we're ramping that up. Uh, we launched a shallow rent subsidy for seniors. Look, the problem with seniors, I mean, it's easy to overly say, well, every homeless person is addicted to drugs or mental illness, and they're not, they're not. Some, some are struggling, some folks are struggling, and we should have the same compassion for someone who's suffering from mental illness as we do from someone who's suffering from diabetes. It shouldn't be viewed any differently. But they're not all, but seniors who are becoming homeless, this is economics. This is economics. They're becoming homeless purely for economic reasons. And so the shallow rent subsidy program is good, but it is too limited. Um, and we need to expand that and we need to do more. And then uh, later this month, we're gonna tackle, LA did, a, I think it had a reasonably good effort around analyzing, they had 500 kind of points of data, a lot of which the county has. And they came up with an algorithm that could kind of predict the probability that someone was on the verge of homelessness and then you could proactively reach out to them before they, they cried out for help. And we're gonna be adopting that and moving forward and investing in that. Um, but the efforts around prevention are key. It, it's, it, it is essential that you do that, um, but it's hard because there's so much focus on what does it look like on this corner or that corner, just deal with that. And we can't lose sight, we have to deal with that and we have to deal with the folks that are at risk of becoming homeless. And we cannot lose sight of the root underlying cause of homelessness, which is poverty. And every time we come in and we talk about good jobs and people getting paid fairly and a good wage and all of this, like you get drunk, but there is no retired IBW electrician with a pension who's at risk of becoming homeless when they're a senior. Right, there's not. Now I get it, doing that now is not gonna help, but we can't lose sight of the fact that so much of what we do in, in public policy is stepping in to subsidize greed. We let workers get screwed on the front end, and they don't get the fair, and then we let folks screw people on the cost of housing, and then somehow the folks, middle class folks who actually pay taxes are supposed to step into the void and subsidize greed on both ends of that. And so we've got to fight to tackle this in a holistic way, along with the situation we see on the streets. Let's ditto to all that. Let them, at least I would say with respect, there are pilots, it's true, but there are far larger policy efforts uh, that we have done. I want to uh, give a shout out to some of our San Diego Housing Commission staff that are here. 18,000 San Diego families who were assisted with over $200 million worth of rental and utility subsidy relief. Uh, that's homelessness prevention, full stop. 18,000 folks who were not evicted because they were able to take the subsidies. Other cities struggled to put that money out. Our city prioritized it, got the dollars out, and averted those folks that ended up on the sidewalk. That's large scale, that's big, and that's a case for more federal assistance for rental assistance. President uh, Biden had $150 billion in Build Back Better uh, for housing assistance. That was carved out, it's not moving forward, but there's no reason it shouldn't. Uh, the, this homelessness crisis is nationwide. Let me tell you something. When I talk to mayors, it doesn't matter where they're from, urban, rural, red state, blue state, conservative, liberal, we all are dealing with this. This is the number one issue all of us are dealing with, and so it does require national efforts. Our housing policy reforms that we're advancing, you know, the fact that we're a statewide leader when it comes to accessory dwelling units, uh, where we were quick to implement SB9 and working now to implement SB10, uh, the kinds of stuff that is going to get us a pro-housing designation from the state of California, that's homelessness prevention right there. And I will tell you that the Barrio Logan Community Plan, which we implemented last year, has a suite of tenant protections inside of it. We are looking at trying to do that citywide because we recognize that tenants in Barrio Logan and every other neighborhood deserve some level of protection in this space. So we are trying to scale this up. The question, well, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. Here's my question, Lisa. There are 18 cities in this county. What are the other 17 mayors doing? So one thing I will. <laughs> well, we could talk about, yeah, we, we could talk about some of the mayors. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I do want to say, one of the issues with that I've heard from folks um, about the county program that you mentioned, Supervisor Fletcher, um, is that it funded capital, but it didn't necessarily really help with their ongoing costs. So a lot of the costs associated with a new service are actually the restrooms, the food, the other things. I'm sure Mayor Gloria is very familiar with all the this different. Is the, the this is speaking to the. Um, 
you know, you talked about cities not applying for right. the shelter funds. Right. How would you respond to that sort of concern that it, you know, well, funding the capital doesn't really help with the operation? Yeah, but look, I mean, that, look, that's where everyone has to prioritize, right? I mean, every, every there, there's, there's always limited resources. When you govern money, rights, land, budget, it, it's not an infinite supply. You have to make choices, right? And so as a county, the three budgets I've been a part of, the single largest increase in every single one of those budgets has been health and human services, and the largest subset of that has been behavioral health services. Every year, higher and bigger than the first, which means other things don't get funded as much. And so I just think that is incumbent upon everyone. Now, look, there's other folks that are working. We're working with Lemon Grove on, on some ideas right there. We, we funded a thing in Oceanside. We're working with that. Like, there are folks that are stepping up to try and figure out how to, how to do it, but ultimately, it is like cities do the structure and the administration, counties do the mental health and behavioral health services and step in. And that's the partnership we've had time and again. And look, every time when we come in and we do all the home key and all these programs, it's hard because the county's got to go find the money. And it, there's not a, a, a machine in the basement that prints money. So that means we got to take it from somewhere else. And we do. And every time the mayor has to do that, he's got to take it from somewhere else. And he does. And so that's where I think we just need the regional response to say this is the most pressing regional issue we face. Uh, and it's what occupies the most of my individual time. And it's the single largest areas that we're seeing increase uh, in our county. And so we need everyone to bring that same approach. Well, let's talk about Project Home Key. So for those who don't know, Project Home Key um, is Governor Newsom's initiative to try to provide a lot more housing um, quickly for homeless Californians. So earlier this year, um, the county, city of San Diego, whole region had access to as much as $61 million in reserve funds. And the city and the county and all the other cities in the county missed that initial deadline. And in the end, we ended up getting $12 million for 40 units. And so my question is, what are we doing to make the most of other opportunities that are coming up? If this is our biggest problem, and I know both of you sitting up here would tell me that housing ends homelessness, what are we doing to make the most of future opportunities, including the upcoming home key application? Well, Lisa, I think we are applying for home key. Uh, you and Voice has done a lot of uh, coverage of the previous purchases by my predecessor of hotels and rightly criticized or explored uh, those situations and we're not interested in repeating uh, those uh, mistakes. So we're going to get right and make sure that we apply and, and do these things correctly and sustainably. We are applying. Uh, we applied and received the funding for the, the El Cerrito project. Uh, we're going to apply uh, multiple applications for this next round. Uh, we're drawing down HAP money. Uh, we're drawing down federal money. We had a whole press conference, Ms. Chiatic, on Thursday uh, of the 60 plus percent increase in our receipt of state and federal funds by the city of San Diego because we out, out hustling for these dollars. Yeah, that's one funding stream that, for, and one single opportunity that we didn't apply for because we weren't prepared to do it. We are now, and we have to continue to do that work. Um, a part of the quest, though, is to make sure that things like HAP continues. This is time limited in the state of California. I believe the governor and our legislative leaders intend to continue to continue to continue this funding, but we don't know that for a fact. And it becomes very hard to start planning out some of these shelters if you believe you only have three years of funding as opposed to an infinite amount of, uh, in terms of number of years. We need more help from the federal government. So you know, it's we will continue to partner, and this is also an area of collaboration. When we go hand in hand to the state and ask for these dollars, we're successful, as is shown most recently by the example you gave. Um, but we need more resources, right? I mean, if we maximize this stuff, we still have more people entering homelessness than exiting. And so that calls for an increase in the capacity of these programs and to make some of these programs, which are currently temporary, permanent, so that we can rely on them year after year to make sure this ecosystem that we're building out is there whenever someone falls down and needs help. I also think something I've, I've dealt with at the county, um, and I, I brought this up with our county employees, our county leadership team, and I've talked about this a lot, is the, the, the way to ensure that things go perfectly smooth, everything ideal, outcome, perfect thing, is to just let it take forever. <laughs> right? I mean, you just let it take forever, and you have forever to like make it. And, and I've really tried to infuse in the county this notion that like the, the urgency of the problem requires us to go fast. But in going fast, we need to accept that it's not always going to be perfectly smooth. 
right? It's not always going to be perfectly smooth. And, and you can put in place checks and all these things. And so the first round went fast and it wasn't perfectly smooth. And that's all kind of getting worked out. But then there's a natural reaction and then say, well, let's just slow down and make sure, right? And this is an ongoing tension that we face. When the mayor and I wanted to put the sprung structure up in Midway, they were like, uh, 11 months. I'm like, you've lost your damn mind. It's going to take 11 months to put up a sprung structure. That's crazy. No, we're going to open it August 1st, which caused incredible anxiety. Incredible anxiety. But we opened it, and it was a little clunky. We had a little fire marshal issue. We had some water flow in, right? But, but there, 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 there's a sense where you can't drag people so much because it didn't go exactly perfect if you're also pushing them to go fast. And so, you know, I've inherited a culture that, that didn't do any of this, right? County wasn't, there was no county department, there was no department of homelessness, right? Now we've created that and now we've got them doing things that they're never doing, but it's pushing them out of their comfort zone and accepting it's not gonna be exactly ideal. And then just not getting mental about when you get drugged because it didn't go exactly perfect. Are you moving forward? Are you going as fast as you can? Are you going as aggressively as you can? Are you getting as many people to help and care you can? Um, and so that's a culture we both run into with our respective agencies because the nature of bureaucracy is you don't get rewarded for getting it done quick. You get crushed for any minor mistake. And so we've got to accept that it's not always going to be ideally perfect, but are we going with the best of intention to help as many people as fast as we can? And that's a culture we're trying to create in the county. Well, that, <laughs> so that, that brings up a question of something that, you know, I heard as recently as last week on the street with two seniors. Um, you know, for months now, um, downtown advocates have been pushing for a safe lot where people can take their tents. And last week, two homeless seniors told me that if the city, the county, anyone in the county set up a safe lot, they would go the next day. And so I'd like to ask the two of you, I, you know, I heard what you were saying there, but why haven't we done a safe lot yet in the city or the county? Both the city and the county have been exploring it. So what's up with that? What's going on? Well, we we put out $10 million to build them. I mean, they're, they're to grant, to get safe one? parking. In the unincorporated? I mean, we can identify a spot. I mean, a lot of the areas in the unincorporated are not as ideal for them because they're further out and you don't want to take someone from downtown and bus them all the way out in the middle of nowhere uh, and put them there. Um, you know, in the county, I mean, we, we've had a very successful, our hotel program, more than a thousand folks have been housed, 30% of the folks who come into our hotel voucher program have now been permanently housed. Um, and, you know, again, it, it's not ideal in every hotel and every person, uh, but it's working. Um, and, you know, I think safe, I think safe camping is, is, is a good option. It's not the sole option. It's not gonna unilaterally solve the problem, but that was why we put it out. $10 million for safe parking, safe camping or shelters. Um, and we need more of it, but the, the bulk of where the need is is gonna be in the incorporated cities, which is why you need your city and your county. But we were here to offer that money and then we're there to step up and provide mental health services and substance abuse services and all of those whenever they get up and running. I'll be watching to see what the county does, but we do have one mayor here. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll talk some more about that. But the, so here's the, you asked what have you been doing? And the answer is opening the, the Rosecrans sprung structure, uh, taking Pier 1 and turning it into a, a Sea Heart shelter, uh, the Rachel's Promise women's shelter in downtown, acquiring the Pacific Inn. We have, it's not like we're hanging out, like we're doing other stuff. What you saw in my budget, uh, the city council approved was $200,000 for a safe village. Uh, you know, uh, many have been animated about it, you know, in terms of location, bringing actual dollars to the table. That's work that's still in progress. Um, I'm willing to support putting one in our city and doing it and, and, and trying to advance, but it, it, you know, that is one solution. The overall strategy, in my mind, is to try and diversify our portfolio of offerings to remove every excuse that there is. If you want congregate, non-congregate, women only, senior only, for families, what have you, we're trying to enrich and diversify the portfolio so that everyone has an option that fits them. And what you see is with, you know, more behavioral health oriented shelters where you see uh, women only, non-congregate, we are doing that work. I see, I think Safe Villages fits into that equation somewhere. Uh, we're still working to raise the rest of the money and find a viable location and a provider. Can I just 
underline this because this does not get mentioned enough. You all have heard about the great resignation. That might have meant that you had to wait a little bit longer at a restaurant or something like that. This is real in the homelessness services sector. And as you have a county and a city that are pushing hard and fast to get more of these things up and running, finding the workforce to do this is extremely difficult. We need to pay these folks better. We need to train more of them. The city invests in a program at City College to try and provide and, 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 and train folks to do this work. Uh, but when in the context of trying to scale up all these services, we continually run up against providers who want to do the work but simply don't have the staffing. And that's where we can we certainly use more people to actually get off of social media and actually get into this work and actually to provide direct services to homeless people. I want to reiterate this is the point the mayor just made because the, the shortage of providers is is one of the biggest barriers. It does, it is real. This this holds you back and and there, there's been instances with the hotel programs we've had where literally we've been begging the provider. They were the only one. Nobody else would step up and do it. And we're begging, please don't quit. Please don't quit. Like we'll do like whatever we need to do. Um, and we spent a year, I mean we it took longer than I wanted, but no one could ever tell us what number of behavioral health workers, and this is it's a little bit different than just pure homeless outreach workers, that type of stuff, um, but the first jurisdiction in the nation to really come up, and now we can tell you exactly how many behavioral health workers we believe we need, everything from peer support specialists to psychiatrists, and we've got 92 pages of specific recommendations for how we recruit and retain and, and hold more of those folks. Uh, we've already put in an initial investment of $15 million into this fund to start this work, and, and it's not going to happen overnight, but it's beginning to move. You, we talked a lot about beds. We've talked a lot about beds the last few years, right? We need a better array of, of facilities for folks, not just a shelter, but we're talking actual step-down facilities. We're talking all of the things um, below that, that high acuity locked inpatient psych bed. Now, in the last four years in San Diego, we've seen a 40% increase in the number of long-term beds and subacute. The problem is, 40% increase is not nearly enough to meet the need. And we now know exactly how many we need. And now we can start orienting our funding around that, our incentives around that, what we're doing at Third Avenue and what we did with Alvarado to lift and shift that. And now we can go back to Third Avenue and add a significant number of subacute step-down beds. Um, so there are a lot of pieces moving. It's not fast enough, it's not enough. The problem is great, uh, but there is tremendous effort and intention going around building out the behavioral health system we need so that the right person gets the right care at the right time. We now have six CSUs, crisis stabilization units. We have mobile crisis response team countywide 24-7 uh, so the individuals don't have to have law enforcement show up if they're not a danger themselves or someone else. Uh, we're building out the community care. There's a lot of things that are moving, but this issue of workforce is perhaps the single greatest issue you face and part of it is we've got to pay folks better. And part of it is we have to make sure they're trained better and they have more opportunity for advancement and we recruit more people in. So there is a lot uh, of effort and energy going and those things are moving in the right direction now, not at the speed to catch up with the broader global trends. Uh, but there's more happening in San Diego around the space than I think anywhere in the state of California. One thing I would say that the behavioral health system and the homeless service system have in common is that they're flawed. There are more people that need help. There are people that are waiting for help. Um, but we also, you know, I have to take this opportunity, having the two of you on stage, we also have care court that's going to be coming down just to get everybody up to speed. This is another Governor Newsom policy. Um, basically, the point is, and, and Mayor Gloria has been a really vocal supporter statewide of this, um, is to try to make it easier to compel folks with certain serious mental illnesses, specifically psychotic illnesses, into care. And homeless people have really been a focal point of the discussion around this, though they're not the only uh, folks that potentially could be care corp participants. Um, so I do want to ask, uh, first off, I mean, there have been a lot of, you know, commentary, I guess, that, that there's this idea that this would help so many homeless people. So Supervisor Fletcher, how many people are we thinking the county potentially could aid with this sort of program? Well, we don't know yet. Um, we're, look, we are the only one. Okay, let me, let me back up on care. There is a desire and a temptation and an easy trap to fall into that if you just do this one thing, then everything will be taken care of. Right? And, and the reality is homelessness is far too complex with too many things that are involved. And so, 
Care Court got lifted up as this thing that if we just do this one thing, and everything will be okay, and everyone will be off the streets. Well, that's not the case at all. Now, I believe it will be a useful tool, and it will help. Just like everything we just talked about and continue to talk about uh, on the continuum. But it is not unilaterally, singularly going to alleviate all of the suffering and poverty in the world. Let's just be clear. So, I wouldn't oversell. Now, it is a tool. Compel, I think, is a little bit of a strong word because it will be court ordering you to get some treatment. But if you don't, there's no consequence. So it is a little bit like the unarmed British cop who's like, stop, or like, oh, you'll stop again. Right? I mean, there, there's not. Now, is it going to be helpful? I think it'll be helpful. And I think it will primarily apply to, like, probably folks suffering from schizophrenia, or most likely. Uh, I will say we're the only large county in the state of California that's in the early implementation. And this will be clunky, and it won't be ideal, and it will be hard. But everyone who gets helped and who gets access to services, they'll be glad that we went first. And there will be a bunch of stories about how it's not ideal and it's not perfect, but that's what you get when you're the first county who says, hey, if we have a way that we think we can help more folks, we'll help more folks. So what we are doing now, we have an entire team of folks in the county that are working with the state to try and model and project how many folks will get referred in, how many folks will the court order, and then what services will they order, and then how do we build out those services. And so we should have a better sense by spring. It won't really go into effect until probably next July or August when the first referrals start getting made and the first courts start doing it. But we, we will have an obligation to make sure when the services are ordered that we have to do it. And, and I went to the state and did stuff and I told people, yeah, make counties do stuff. I don't know why counties are so reluctant to be required to do things. Hold us accountable, tell us what to do. I have no problem with that. And I have no objection to the state of California doing that to the county of San Diego. But I also told them, you got to know you're prioritizing this population, which is good. And it's the population we should prioritize the folks who need help most. But I have a critical shortage of behavioral health workers. So we all need to be clear that in order to meet the need of these folks, we're going to ship folks from other programs. We launched a countywide effort to try and do screenings in schools for every kid, behavioral health and mental health screenings. That's an important prevention program. There will be efforts, things like that, that we will move folks out of to meet the need for care court. Now, that's okay, because we prioritize limited resources. But we need to all be clear that this will be a tool. I think it will be helpful. Uh, it will be a little clunky when we roll out, but we're going first. Uh, because we, if, if 100 people get helped or 500 people get helped, then it's worth it. You know, Mayor Gloria. That deserves tremendous applause, because yeah. most counties, they're not really in this time. There'll be mistakes that will be made, but it's far better than our current situation where we're choosing to leave the most severely mentally ill to suffer and die on our streets. The complexities of their cases have been one the counties don't want to necessarily engage on. Well, that time's up, right? We need to prioritize the people who are the most sick, the most vulnerable, the most likely to die. And this requires a compulsory responsibility on counties to prioritize this way. But like the supervisor said, this is not game over. We have more work to be done. I believe that the state still has unfinished business when it comes to conservatorship reform. The two key bills that needed to pass this year to, I think, make modernize this structure that was created in 1967 and has never been revisited since then, I know a few things that are currently working well uh, that has been untouched and unamended for that long. We need to go back and do that work. I will be at the front of the line I'm working already with Senator Susan Eggman to make sure those bills get reintroduced and they get passed. It is past time simply saying that that person is not a threat to themselves or to others. That is a fiction, it is a lie, and it is a death sentence for the sickest people in our community. That is wrong, and it has to stop. Care courts a step in the right direction. Full conservatorship reform is necessary. So one thing I definitely wanted to make sure that we touched on is just the level of desperation on the street right now. I mean, people are so down, there are more deaths, there are more seniors on the street, more people who are medically vulnerable. Um, and the folks that I talk to, they feel like they're being pinballed around the system. You know, they call 211, everybody says call 211. They go to the, you know, referral that 211 gives them and then there's not enough room at the end. This program can't help them go to this other program. And they face the same thing when they're trying to find a place to stay and live. Um, you know, they can't, might have a Section 8 voucher, and they can't find a place. 
Um, so what, what do you all feel that you can do about that? Uh, how would you respond to this feeling that folks just, as much as you're saying, we're adding things, we're doing things, people on the street feel like they're not getting it, and people who are housed are seeing that they're not getting it, and they're frustrated. I mean, look, no, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's difficult, it's challenging. Like, we have a structural system in this country. I mean, the, the way we approach healthcare in this country is insane. I mean, it's ridiculous. If every one of you right now broke your leg, like instantly, one Scott would be really stressed out because invariably you'd get sued. But if you all broke your leg, we have, we have a system where every one of you in this room could get a cast and a crutches and an x-ray and you could make it home in time to watch the end of the Padre game tonight. Right, we have that healthcare system. But if every one of you in this room right now needed mental health treatment, Ah, six to eight weeks if you have really good insurance. Or became homeless. Right? And and so like like we have that like systemic challenge. Then we have the nature of American government, which diffuses power and authority and responsibility to a whole bunch of different entities that all have to want to do it. And right before COVID, and it kind of got lost because it came out right before COVID, the governor had a homeless task force and I sat on it and I said, but give us the authority to not just dust off the numbers from the one Gray Davis had 20 years ago, right? And so what we put out, if we wanna structurally change the nature of homelessness across California, in government, you do what you have to do first. You do what you're legally required to do first. You have to comply with the Clean Water Act. You have to comply with the Clean Air Act. If not, you get sued, so you do those things. Every second grader in California has a classroom to sit in with a teacher. Now, they're not all equally good, but there's no second grader that doesn't have a public school to sit in because you have to do it. And so when you have individual leaders who care deeply, then we work incredibly hard to plow through the opposition and the nimbies and the challenges to try to make a difference. But our recommendation came out and said, what we need in this state is a legally enforceable obligation on counties that you must provide mental health and drug treatment services to everyone who needs them enforceable via a private right of action. I mean, if that individual can't access it, they could sue you. And we said cities need to provide a place for everyone to sleep. Enforceable via a private right of action. If we had to do it, you would start seeing funding get aligned, you would start seeing greater ability to, to fight through the opposition every time you try to cite one of these things, and we would structurally be able to align these things in a much better way and get better outcomes. Now, in the interim of fixing the nature of American healthcare, the historic inequities around mental health and the crazy notions people have about lack of understanding of addiction, we get up every single day and we fight to try to make it better. And there's no, we're gonna do this one thing and it's all gonna be okay. It is the hard, gritty, daily work that you do to find places, to cite places, to fund things, to hire people, to move it in a better direction. Um, and that's the only thing that you have in front of you while you fight for these bigger things, you get up every single day. Uh, and you give it everything you have. Lisa, I want to I, I acknowledge the frustration that you're describing, but I think it's also important because there's a there's a temptation to just throw your hands up at the situation. It's kind of where you started the conversation. The fact of the matter is, is our city system last year was able to get t over 1,200 homeless San Diegans into permanent housing. This is right now tonight. We will house thousands of people in our shelter system and through various programs. We can solve this problem. The challenge that you're describing is one of scale. And as we do the work that he's describing of finding locations, recruiting the staff, dedicating the funding, and getting this work done, I need this audience of all people to know we can do this. It is possible with commitment, but we can't tear each other up. We have to be all focused in the same direction. And can I maybe just a second add on to this? Being mayor is no joke. Let me tell you something happens almost daily. Mayor, I don't like this homelessness situation, but don't you dare build anything near me in my neighborhood. And they don't see the inconsistency. They don't see that those things don't go together. Until we can all train our fire to say, listen, we've got to build more housing of all times, of all times. Middle, we haven't talked about it, middle income. All these homeless services workers we're talking about, they too are housing insecure. We need to build housing for them as well. But when you see me advancing community plan updates, Blueprint SD, Homes for All of Us, Housing Action Package, uh, the, the Midway Sports Arena redevelopment, Civic Center redevelopment, you see that we're trying to tackle this to scale. 
and I need your help, not your criticism. I need you to pick up an oar and start rowing with me, not tweeting at me and acting like that this is okay. It's not okay. I'm the first to acknowledge it, but we can do something about it. And again, over 1,200 people in our city last year was able to go through the system and get housed permanently. The problem is, is that we don't know the data of how many people entered homelessness, but it is surely more than that. And until we get that ratio inverted, we're gonna to continue to have the crisis that's here. But no one is playing small ball out here. We are swinging to the fences. That was a sports reference, guys, that I just gave you. We're swinging to the fences on this issue, and I could use your help. One more question and then I'm gonna to go to some questions from you all. Um, you know, sort of reflecting on, on the responses here, um, I think a lot of folks are wondering, both housed and unhoused, is there any shot of this getting better anytime soon? We're really staring down a very tough economic time ahead. Um, the eviction moratorium in this city just ended. A lot of COVID aid has ended. Is there any shot of this getting better? Is the Calvary coming? Do you guys have a big housing plan? Please detail. <laughs> Why? Well, I mean, this is the nature of the entire conversation we've said. Right? I mean, everything that we get up every single day and do is to try and make it better. Um, and there, there's no one entity alone that is, that is going to solve this. Uh, but you throw every, and, and I know people get tired of hearing how much money you're spending and, this, and that type of thing. But we are fundamentally changing the nature of behavioral health in San Diego County. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. You don't make a psychiatrist in, in 30 minutes, right? I mean, it, it's citing facilities, building facilities, medical-grade facilities. Like, these are things that move me. But you, when you look at it from three and a half years ago until today, where our county government is, it's unquestionably fundamentally different. And you look at all of the things that have come online. Now, is it enough? It's not enough. And that's why we have plans to keep going and to do more. Um, and so, like, you can get beat down and say, well, what's the point? And a lot of folks do, a lot of folks say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go work on a park and I'm gonna do this other thing and I'm gonna let someone else worry about that. But we haven't chosen to do that. We've chosen to get up every single day and fight for every person that's out there with the basic hope that we can improve their condition, give them a chance at a fulfilled life and get them off. And, and there are, and we can run through all of the things and the numbers of folks that have been helped. It's not enough, so we do more. Uh, but you can't get distracted or dismayed because then the only thing that you do is say, well, you know what, I'll just throw up my hands and I'll work on something else. And that doesn't help anybody. Lisa, I think when I get asked that question, which is fairly common, you know, the last two years were so horrible, I forgive everyone for not trying to think about it. We just want to put it in the back of your mind. But doing that really ignores how we got where we are right now. We were all impacted by the pandemic, but many of us are privileged enough to be able to sit in this beautiful university and have this conversation for an hour. What about the people who did not have that privilege? People who showed up at the table extremely vulnerable with no privileges whatsoever. They are hurting badly too. And because we moved on and go back to having restaurant dinners and parties and vacations, they are still lingering. So I will say that yes, we can be hopeful. I'm hopeful. Uh, because we're coming out of this, and as we're getting better, it'll certainly get to them too, but it can't come fast enough. I hope what you're getting from this is an impatience from both the city and the county on this matter. But I need you to have hope. One of the reasons my office weekly puts out uh, our newsletter where we include the story of a success, because all we ever do is talk about the encampment here or the person there. We don't talk about the success stories, and they do happen. They do have, we are spending resources, we are creating programs, we are building shelters and housing opportunities. This can happen, and if we're not the ones telling people that, then who's gonna know that, right? So we, I do have hope, I have extreme optimism that we can solve this problem, in part because the last couple of years have been horrific and unusual and not normal, and it has exacerbated this problem. It will get better, but it does require good people to get in this fight, and I am 1,000% in this fight. I will continue to push every policy, every program, every funding priority that is out there to make sure that we address this issue as the priority that it is for our city. And I'll be watching what you both do. Um, I'm going to move to a few questions um, from folks in the audience here. I'm going to start with the question I know Lucius had in the slideshow um, that I was showing earlier. He would want me to ask this one. Um, the Downtown Community Planning Council sent a letter to the city and the mayor demanding dignified public restrooms be built in the upcoming Tailgate Park development. The development team behind Tailgate Park did not include public restrooms, despite concerns. 
Will the mayor and the city make sure dignified public restrooms are built in downtown? And I'll add also for Supervisor Fletcher, what is the county doing about public restrooms? So, yeah, we're fighting like hell for these bathrooms, right? And whether it's Park and Market, um, the former Horton Plaza, I mean, that deal has been going on, and my team has been, you know, working and fighting to make sure that we have public restrooms there. We stood up porta potties uh, in various parts uh, of, of downtown, we're including them in the parks like East Village Green that we're constructing. Um, you know, we are doing this work. I just need to ask folks to quit acting fool in these bathrooms. I mean, it's not just the homeless population, it's everybody. You've seen the stories about the lack of cleanliness. Talk about worker issues. It's very hard to get people to do that job as well. And so, you know, when these bathrooms are being destroyed, and I'm not saying this is the homeless thing, this is that everybody's getting in there and acting foolish. Like, it's kind of funny, but it's not, right? I mean, it makes it harder for me to tell a community we need to put a restroom here because they think of it as only a negative thing rather than a common human thing, which is that we all go to the bathroom, right? But the answer to the question is we're doing that work now, um, but we could certainly be good partners in making sure you clean up after yourself after you use the damn thing. I can't believe I have to say that, but some people came out of the home last two years and come out crazy and they're acting stupid in these things and I don't have enough park maintenance people to keep this thing clean, right? So just for God's sakes, if you see someone messing this up, <laughs> this is getting crazy. I know my staff's going to have a heart attack. But I just, I get these letters from people and I'm like, well, it's there, it's the bad, it's available. You know, you're talking about cases when they're not there. Well, when they're there, then people don't like them. And then it's chasing our tail and this is just nuts. I'm just asking to be a decent human being for God's sakes and flush them. Done. I mean, it's not too much. No, I, we, we want more publicly available restrooms, right? I mean, cities deal with this, counties we deal with it in the unincorporated areas, chair of MTS we deal with it in our transit system. Um, it's a tremendous expense, right? And that doesn't mean it's not important, it doesn't mean we, we shouldn't do it. But it is, it's not the cost of the bathroom, right? The cost of the bathroom is a capital expense to have a bathroom. To the mayor's point, you have to have 24-7 security. 24-7 security. You also have to clean them every two to three hours. And so at a time, again, when we have a critical shortage, it does become like, okay, should we launch a new shelter facility that has bathrooms? Should we offset parkings and camping? Uh, or should we fund it? it, it and the, the cost of each of these individual ones is really, really expensive and incredibly staff intensive, which is why it's such an incredible challenge, not just in San Diego, uh, but in, in cities throughout America. Uh, so, yep, it's like everything, we need more of it, but it does, again, come down to, if you do that, then you're not able to do a lot of these other things. And that's why I think cities, counties, transit agencies, everyone struggle a lot with this. I'm gonna ask a question here that I, I've been getting a lot lately, um, and that is the concerns about the end of the city's eviction moratorium and a bunch of protections also that the county had had in place um, is there any plan to try to address what could be much more, you know, many more people falling into homelessness due to the end of the eviction moratoriums and protections? And I'll add, would either of you support more tenant protections to keep tenants in their homes? Yeah, at the county, we, we came up, uh, Vice Chair Nora Vargas really took the lead on this um, and helped get our initial actions and steps through. Um, and I know her and her team and others are kind of exploring and looking at what else you can possibly do. I think one of the challenges is during COVID, there was a lot of things that were done that were, you know, extraordinary kind of efforts or actions because of the nature of the pandemic. The question is when you come out of it, figuring out how you right size, what are the things we need to put in place moving forward and, and, and how do you do it? Um, and so the county did step up. Uh, it was very controversial. Uh, we did it. I really appreciate Supervisor Vargas for kind of leading that effort. And I think we have to keep looking at everything that you may be able to put in place. One of the bigger concerns is like our ERAF program, uh, the rental assistance program, you know, those funds are, are gone. They're dwindling down and they will be gone. And there's no source to replace those. I mean, the mayor talked about Amartya Sen, the county spent $250 million. That is not a dollar amount that the county of San Diego has the ability to absorb and fund in an effort moving forward. Um, and so there is real concern um, around these issues as we move forward. So I think I answered this a little bit before, but um, you know we have some tenant protections in the Barrio Community Plan. I think there is a desire and interest to do that citywide. 
Um, you know, we have various ordinances, much like when I was talking about behavioral health being from the 60s. I mean, some of this stuff needs to be re-looked at in the context of the 2020s and the rental market we're in today. Uh, we established with the council's support a $5 million tenant legal defense fund last year. I mean, so there is more the city can do. We'll continue to try and work in this space. But to, from where I sit, a lot of this is, is uh, uh, addressing symptoms. What we have to do is build more housing that people can afford. I mean, it's it, it, the, the, the constriction, the, the lack of supply is going to make uh, these tenant protections meaningful, uh, but not transformative if the people don't actually have choices on where they live, if they really do fear an eviction because there's no other option available to them. Uh, you know, we just have to have more housing. I can't help myself here. I'm going to ask another question myself. So we keep talking about the need for more housing. And I know that the city and county recently had a meeting. They talked about building 10,000 more units. Obviously, that would aid a number of different populations, not just the homeless population. Um, we know that there's a need for thousands of new homes for homeless individuals, currently homeless. Um, is there any big plan that either of you are working on? Is there any sense that there could be a possibility of seeking some funds or doing something to deliver many more homes? Well, I mean, look, I'm the first one. Like I inherited a county government that there was this myth that the Board of Supervisors, before three Democrats took over, it was just this housing production machine. It's a straight-out myth. It's just not true. In the seven years before I joined the Board of Supervisors, they averaged per year 700 houses, 700 doors actually open per year. That's it. Now they voted to pass a lot of stuff that they knew was never gonna get built. Blow the top off of the mountain here and build in a high fire zone where you never get insurance and none of it ever happened. And so we have had to come in and restart our climate action plan. We've had to come in and research all of these components and pieces to make sure that there's some certainty. But in spite of that, we are permitting and building more housing in the last three years than they ever did in the seven years before I got there. Now, we're not gonna solve our region's housing need in the unincorporated area. It is too rural, it is too remote. We will do more than we've ever done before. And as a county, we're not suing the state over our arena number. We're on a path to achieve our arena number. And we will do it. We will get there. We got a lot of work to do on the very low category, but we will, we will get there. Adopting VMT, doing the infill areas, all the prioritization. But then we said as a county, look, let's take every county-owned parcel of land, regardless of where it is, and let's build housing there. And so we've got 3,000 units of housing going, not all of it in the unincorporated, but all of it affordable that we're doing as a county agency. At MTS, where I chair, we've got 2,000 units of housing going on MTF's own land. And so some of it is put in the zoning and those things in place so that the market forces that can do it can do it. And then thinking creatively about how you build more affordable housing. But our county government is unquestionably building more housing today than they were before we got there. And that's only going to ramp up as we provide more certainty. Now, I get it. That doesn't help you if you're looking for a house today. Right? But the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Um, and those are the things that we're doing every single day. And Lisa, I have hope in this regard because you know, we were just the other day breaking ground on 4,000 new homes uh, at the Riverwalk Golf Course. I think we need more housing and we need golf courses, right? And so we're making that choice. The same is true of the I-15, the Junipers uh, in Rancho Bernardo. 4,250 homes at the current site of the sports arena, 1,000 homes on the two blocks owned by the state of California in downtown San Diego, 900 homes at 16th and Newton, Barrio Logan. The city uh, civic center redevelopment will surely net us a large number of homes. And those are the big scale projects. If you drive around North Park and Golden Hill, what you see is a lot of quality infill development that is actually attainable housing. A lot of this stuff is deep restricted affordable. Some of it is uh, market rate. Some of it is moderate income. Uh, this is what we have to do. And what you see is a, is a clip where it is going up. And you can see it with your own eyes when we're saying, you know what, old San Diego was a large service parking lot and a one-use facility, and that's it. Future of San Diego is what you see at uh, SDSU West, at Riverwalk, uh, at Sports Arena, and soon coming to you at Civic Center Plaza in downtown. I am pushing these policies, and you're going to see the fruits of it, and that is going to make spaces for our children and our grandchildren to grow up and live and raise a family and build wealth in the city that they came from. Uh, 
I have hope about housing. We just need to make sure people understand this housing is about for us and to help us resolve the biggest challenge in our community right now, which is homelessness. I look forward to checking the data. Hmm. Um, so Scott Lewis is telling me uh, that I have to wrap up. Um, our two guests here know I could go for another hour. I've got many more questions, but I have to wrap it up here. Um, so please join me in thanking Chair uh, Fletcher. Thanks for joining us for this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode from PolitiFest 2022. This week, we'll be back in the studio with Scott, Andrea, and Andy. They'll break down the week's news, dropping Friday afternoon. Our host and moderator for this episode was reporter Lisa Halverstadt. Big thanks to the University of San Diego for hosting PolitiFest 2022 with us. And thanks to Mayor Gloria and Supervisor Fletcher for joining us for this panel. And thanks to everyone who showed up at PolitiFest and or PolitiFest South. They were awesome events this year. I'm Nate John. We will talk to you soon.